Good morning. You guys all right? All right, you're going to have to be a little more with me this morning. You guys okay? Because this is not a passage that is super fun to talk about, but uh, we're going to dive into it in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. If you guys would turn there with me, that would be awesome. Matthew 10, 16 through 25. I'm going to read this. Uh, it says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and his children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? Man, it's pretty awesome, yeah? Um, okay, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Let's pray and then let's dive in. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, I thank you for each individual in this room. Um, Jesus, I'm just praying that you meet us in this place. I pray that our hearts be filled with gratitude and your joy and your peace. What a uh, total honor and privilege it is to gather with your church this morning. I pray, God, that your word would speak to each one of us. Lord, I know there's some who come here this morning, and even as that candle of peace is being lit, uh, they feel as though their soul and their life is just out of control and chaotic, and they're looking to find center. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that you'd meet them here this morning, God, that you'd remind them that only you can ground them and give them that peace and that rest that they so desire, that they've looked for in so many other things. And so, Jesus, we give you this time this morning. We pray that you are honored in it, in your name. Amen. All right. So Matthew chapter 10. Uh, if you guys have been around the last few weeks, you kind of know where we've been going and what we've been studying through in the book of Matthew. Uh, the chapter, chapter 10 begins with Jesus setting apart these 12 disciples, these uh, soon-to-be apostles, and he commissions them, and it's sort of the, the inner circle of the crowds that are following Jesus that he's called to himself. And last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is sending them. And these 12, again, would later become these apostles. But for the past few weeks, we've been talking about various aspects of this call that were really unique to the disciples themselves, these first 12. But today in, in verse 16, this text sort of opens up a bit, and the, the immediate context is still the same. He's still talking to these 12 disciples um, that, that Jesus is sending these 12 out to minister in Galilee to the Jews. But the imagery that Jesus begins to use here, it sort of gives, gives us this glimpse into the fact that um, it isn't just limited to the 12, but it actually pertains to you and I as well, that it's opened up to us. And so if you're in Jesus, then we're all in view here today. He's not just talking to the 12. We have a role to play in this. And it's really important to understand because this topic that Jesus begins turning his attention towards is persecution. 
And it's an important topic for us to hit on because the reality is that there's many people in the church today that follow Jesus, not because they've necessarily heard his call, um, not because they've necessarily heard the words of Jesus calling them uh, in their life, but because they've actually heard somebody else get up and reiterate Jesus's call in their own words, and it's become very dangerous. I don't know about you, but growing up in the church, there's been several moments in my life where people have come and given me these words, and these words are always like these fortune-telling things for me that um, you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and even at 42 years old, there's times in my life when I I'm like waiting for those things to come to pass because they're in the back of my mind. And the issue that we have is a lot of times we are listening more to other people than we are actually listening to God himself. How has he called you and what has he called you to? Not what is everybody else saying you should do or what has everybody else told you that you're going to do in your life, but how has he called you? And so Jesus has specifically called these 12. And the reality is for you and I that this can sort of lead us to a lot of false expectations of what it means to be a Christian when we bank everything on somebody else. It can lead us to a ton of discouragement. It can lead us to seasons in our life where we feel like we just want to throw the towel in when things don't work out the way that we hoped that things would work, that work out or the way that somebody told us things would work out. And if you thought you were the only people to struggle with this, now we're looking at Jesus's inner 12 who were also somewhat surprised by this call that Jesus lays out for them. And this is why the first word of the text, as Matthew states it in verse 16, he says, behold. And it's this word that we've seen all throughout Matthew's gospel that he continues to use. And it's this command to look. When he says, behold, he means look. And the fun fact about this word is that it's specifically used whenever what's coming next is something that we or they probably wouldn't expect. And so in the context of Jesus calling his disciples and and Matthew using this word behold, what that should trigger in us is that even the 12 were taken by surprise with what Jesus had to say here. This was a surprise to them. They were not expecting this. So to help us get a sense of Jesus's call and to help us get a sense of what discipleship and following Jesus actually looks like, I want to break this up into two categories this morning. The first is this question of what did Jesus actually call us to? And there's some really hard things that we read in this passage, but what did Jesus call us to? What is the call? And so we'll lay out um, three answers based on these three circumstances from this text. What does Jesus call his disciples to? And then after that, I want to close with this question that sort of never dies. If you're a parent, you hear this question time and time and time again. But why? Why? Why does Jesus call us to those things? Uh, So what does Jesus call us to? And so the first answer we see to that question in verse 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Does that sound exciting to anybody else? Like a real encouraging text that we're reading from this morning. Um, If we read that, we probably sound a little bit confused. Like what in the world is Jesus doing? It doesn't make sense. We, We know what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves, right? What happens? They get devoured by wolves. Sheep are defenseless animals. They're not strong. They're not the smartest of animals. Whereas wolves, on the other hand, they're going to tear these sheep to pieces. Like, that's what wolves do. Like, instinctually, wolves have no greater pleasure than to rip little lambs to shreds, right? Um, Just like for you and I, uh, we find no greater pleasure than to go find videos on YouTube of uh, wolves ripping little sheep to shreds, right? Right? 
And so this last week, I actually did that. I was like, I wonder what this looks like. And so like, I, I typed on YouTube, uh, wolf versus sheep, and uh, some very interesting videos came up. But um, one of the videos that I did watch that you should go check out though, it's like two or three minutes, and it's this couple driving through a state park, and the wife has her phone out, and she's, she's filming on the road. I don't know if you guys have seen this, and she's filming these uh, sheep, these bighorn sheep, just like hightailing it down the road. And so she's filming them, and then all of a sudden her camera moves to the left a little bit, and you see this wolf just like going after these sheep. And she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And she just keeps filming, you know? And, and she's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then this wolf just comes in and just like tackles the sheep and like knocks it over and it's disabled. And then this wolf like literally grabs the sheep and drags it off of the road. And she just keeps filming the whole time because that's what we do, right? Like we don't watch NASCAR because we care about the race. We actually care about the carnage. And so she just keeps going the whole time. She's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then she's crying in portions. She's like freaking out about this. And this wolf grabs the sheep and drags it up this mountain. (laughs) And she's filming the whole thing and gets it to the top of the hill. And then it starts eating it. And it's like such a sad video. But if you want to understand how vicious wolves are and the role that like sheeps play, sheep play with wolves, go watch that video. Um, it's quite entertaining, but it'll give you an idea of just how gnarly it is that Jesus is saying this because he's talking about two polar opposite animals. He's talking about um, literally an animal that was meant to follow something and can't really lead itself. And he's talking about an animal that is really created to devour the animals that can't lead themselves. And so uh, when Jesus makes this statement, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, uh, I, I read these things and I like this passage and I often think, so for the disciples, there's probably a couple different responses. You probably have some of them sitting there going like, um, you know, this sounds kind of crazy. Uh, maybe Jesus is talking about a few of us that this is going to happen to, but probably not all of us. Um, little did they know, like 11 of the 12 would end up losing their lives, being drugged before governors. Like everything Jesus talked about would actually happen in their life. Um, but we often are guilty of the same thing. We know the beginning from the end because we have this Bible. The disciples did not even have this to read from to know the beginning from the end. And yet we read these passages and we think that was for the disciples and good for them, but I probably don't ever have to worry about that. And I want to challenge that mindset a little bit this morning because I think the three things that Jesus is really trying to get at in this passage are one, that we actually should be uncomfortable. Two, that we should be a people that are uncompromising. And three, that we should be a people that are unwavering. And I think these are three things, three points that Jesus is making in his call to his disciples. Um, This call sounds a little bit confusing to us and it doesn't make sense because we know what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. Um, But Jesus knows that what he's calling his, his disciples to is not a life of comfort. It's not a life where they can compromise and get by and skate by, not a life of luxury. He's calling them to lay everything down and to follow after him. And if you're anything like me, the older you get, the more comfort is important in your life. And I think we really struggle as Christians because we can read passages like this and not really feel it deeply enough, to be honest with you. 
Like the fact that Jesus is calling us to live a life under tension, to live a life of uncomfortability, that if we ever get to a place where we think we're skating by, we're getting by and everything's all right, or we're trying to aspire to a place where we can just skate by and never feel the tension of living uncomfortable, uncompromised, and unwavering for Jesus, then I would question this morning just where your heart's at and what you think following Jesus is all about. And so this call that Jesus presents to them, it doesn't make sense from a practical standpoint, but this call also doesn't make sense because of who Jesus says that he is. Like several times in the gospel, who does Jesus say he is? Who does he refer to himself as? The shepherd, right? He refers to himself as the good shepherd. And this is not what shepherds do, like lead their sheep out into the midst of wolves. They actually keep their sheep from wolves. They don't send the flock into the path of a wolf. So what's actually going on here? Why, what's Jesus trying to tell us about the nature of being his disciples? So picture this, uh, if you have that YouTube video in your head um, uh, that I just described to you, I want you to pause it for a second before anything happens, and I want you to think about the wolves surrounding the sheep and the the tension that the sheep felt in that moment, like this flock of sheep surrounded by a pack of wolves. We all know what's going to happen, but what's happening inside of them in the midst of that moment? Like, their tension is off the charts. The the wolves are sitting there licking their chops. Their mouths are watering. They're They're ready to go. And then these sheep are incredibly vulnerable. They're basically sitting there in the open, ready to be eaten. And they have no idea how they've gotten there. And these sheep, like, exist in a state of constant threat. Their lives are, 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 um, are already forfeited, even though they're still alive and, and, and they're kicking. But, but these sheep have no safety. They have no security in this life for them to hope in. And so, Anthem, we need to understand that as Jesus calls his disciples, he, he also does it with a purpose. And he promises that his disciples will exist in a state of continual threat and vulnerability. And that doesn't sound super encouraging, but as we go on, I hope that it is more encouraging to you. Because Jesus is telling us that as we respond to his call, our lives are actually already forfeited. Like we laid down our lives for Jesus. So to follow Jesus means to give up your life. That's what he's saying. Notice this, that not only does Jesus' call not come, from, not come with the promise of safety and security and health and, and wealth, but it actually comes with the exact opposite of that. It comes with this promise of danger and and this high probability that things are actually going to go very, very badly for you. And so let me ask you a question this morning. What does this image of discipleship that Jesus is painting in this text for us, what is this image of following Jesus, what does it do to your picture of Jesus this morning? How does this push back on all the expectations you have of what it means to walk after him? And it's a really big deal because so many people today believe that if we're following God's call on our lives, like if you sense that, that he's leading you in a specific direction, then, then what that's going to mean is that as we're obedient to his call and we walk in obedience, that things will work out better for us than we could have done on our own. That's what we believe. And so when we sense his leading in an area of our life, whether that be your career, like your professional Uh, professionally or relationally or maybe in ministry, any sort of calling in your life, we have this expectation oftentimes that if we follow him, things are just going to work out great for us. 
And in an ultimate sense, Scripture does affirm that and say, yes, like that's true. It does actually work out better, but not in the here and now anthem. In fact, Jesus makes the opposite thing very clear. And this is why there's so much confusion in the church when jobs don't work out or you realize that, that, that marriage is way harder than we expected, even though we felt that God brought this person into our life. Like we thought that God was arranging that, but now it's so hard. And then we struggle to reconcile how that thing can be so hard and God took us into it and what the heck God is doing in the midst of that. Like, why did God open that door? And so for some of us, we think it's done more damage than good. But it it seems like when doors we thought God opened for us lead somewhere we never would have ever wanted to go, this becomes one of the reasons nowadays that people become so angry and they leave the church. It's one of the reasons that our hearts become super hardened over time. And it's one of the reasons why so many people believe that they don't know how to hear from God. And it's not because God ever acted contrary to his word and did something he never talked about. It's just simply that maybe some of us weren't really paying attention to what his word actually said and to what the call actually was. Because Jesus is making it fairly clear. I mean, think about his care for the disciples to at least tell them up front, like, hey guys, this is what's going to happen. Don't be surprised when any of this happens to you. And what do we do today the minute hardship hits our life? God, why would you do this? Oh, Lord, where are you at in the midst of this? Are you even real, God? Like, I, I can't even trust you for anything because it just seems like things have gotten so hard in my life. And so have you ever been there before? And the reality that it is for myself that I, I feel like I've been here more times than I can possibly count. That, that I, I think I'm getting better at not getting so angry. And I, I think that I'm understanding this a little bit better, but I still get here more times than I, count, and, and than I can count. And I've had seasons where I find myself angry with God, like angry with him for all the ways that he was ignoring these executive decisions that I already made for my life. Why do you ignore those, God? I find myself like having very specific plans for how I want things to go and plans for what Jesus and I get to partner with and do together based on my own expectations. I have specific plans for how I want the spirit to work in my life. I have specific plans for the doors that should open and the time that they should open. And and sometimes it can feel as though God actually ignored all of it. He never heard my plans or he didn't get it. Does he not know what I want or what I need? And this leads us to becoming angry people. We end up becoming Christians that are constantly throwing tantrums, honestly. Um, A couple weeks ago, uh, for those of you that don't know, we'd been looking at a building on 11th and Pennsylvania. And we put an offer in on it, and after about a month of doing our due diligence, found out that there was asbestos in it, and we couldn't get the, the seller to come down on the price enough for us to remediate the asbestos, and so we felt like we were just supposed to walk away from it. And I walked away from it so discouraged. Because for me, for a month, I had been planning in my mind everything that would happen in that building. How Anthem would look, what would happen, what we would do with this and that, and what it would look like to be immersed in a neighborhood. And I'm like trying to justify all these things in my head and create my own expectations. And then when that door is closed, it left me feeling a little bit like, what the heck? Because that wasn't just one door. There was a door two months prior for First Baptist Church. And so it just felt like one door after another. And it was interesting. I was in Denver a couple weeks ago with a group of pastors. 
And one night we were praying for one another, and I was sitting with this pastor, and he was praying for me. And, and he said, you know what, Chris? He, he knew nothing about my circumstances. He said, you know what, Chris? He said, um, I feel like there's been a series of two doors that have shut in your life recently, and they've left you really discouraged. And he said, and I just felt like the Lord wanted to remind you that those two doors weren't meant as discouragements. They were actually meant as signposts pointing to something better. And for me, like, uh, in that moment, like, it kind of broke me because I thought, like, God, you do see me. God, you actually do know the beginning from the end, and you know what's best. But I had made up in my mind all these expectations, had all these expectations on God, and I just wanted God to follow through and do what I wanted him to do. For you and I, oftentimes we do the same things in life. We establish these expectations, and if God doesn't follow through, then God somehow has bailed on us because things haven't ended up the way that we hoped or thought that they would end up. And if we're paying attention, what we'll find is that there's actually no greater gift in this life than for God to actually let the wolves devour everything else that we hope in. Most of the time, like, our wrestling with God doesn't end the way that we thought it would. And we think that if we walked away, God would miss us. Maybe he'd say, okay, you know what, like, um, let, let's talk about some of those things. Let's have a discussion. Let's compromise here. And, and, and that's just not what ha what's happened in my life. Like, sometimes God and I have gone head to head. We've wrestled it out. God always ends up winning, and it often takes every ounce of, strength, ounce of strength that I have to stay in the fight. And I sometimes wonder if he sort of lets the wolves get a little bit closer and a little bit closer and get a little bite and a little bit, and then the wolves end up taking everything that he doesn't want you to have. And we always look at the wolves as like, oh, man, like, why would God allow the wolves in? But what if the wolves are actually devouring the things that you've put your hope and your trust in and God is actually using them to get rid of those things so that your hope and your trust is only found in solely him? What about you? What are you hoping in besides the shepherd? What are you looking for? The reality is, Anthem, that if we follow Jesus, those other things, those tertiary things in our life have to go. Like the, the word says you cannot serve more than one master. Jesus is God. You, you don't get to serve him and other things. You get him. And, and so those other things that, that, that have our hearts, that have our hope, like they have to go. And which means God's grace on your life may not look the way that you're expecting it. It may not look like the answer to the prayers that you're praying today. It may, it, it may or may not, but God's grace on your life his greatest grace on your life may actually look like a pack of wolves, and you didn't even know it. In fact, you spent most of your life running from it, trying to keep yourself as safe as possible. And it, it may look like jobs that don't work out. It may look like pain that you never saw coming. It may look like the, the limiting of your life for the sake of freedom. And so I want to encourage you this morning, like if you find yourself there today or in the future, don't harden your heart. Because the majority of people that I know that have walked away from the Lord have allowed their hearts to become hardened by failed expectations that they had on God that were not God's expectations from the beginning, but were theirs. So the first example he gives was the sheep amidst the wolves. And what Jesus does with these three examples that he lays out here is he sort of couples them with an instruction, like how we need to respond to these examples. And so what's our call in the middle of this one? He calls us to be sheep 
amidst wolves. And then you look at 16, he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, he says, and so it's tethered to verse 16. Um, He says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So when all our hope is being like viciously destroyed in our life, our natural response is to what? It's to fight or to flight. And when it becomes our joy to accept total dependence on Jesus, something actually incredible happens. Like when when there's this prospect of giving everything for the sake of following him, when that becomes the one thing that excites us in life, something crazy happens and it's called rest. That we actually experience rest, even in the midst of incredible unrest. It's like God in the in the Psalms, there's this passage where it talks about the Lord preparing a table for us in the midst of in the presence of our enemies. And it's like God has prepared this table for us in the presence of our most vicious enemies. And like He's spread out this feast in front of us. And what He says to you is rest. <laughs> Like, partake in what I've given you, and you no longer care about the pack of wolves, because what were you doing prior? Constantly paying attention to what? The enemy that surrounds you, that's looking to devour you. And so we as Christians, for us to live our lives captivated by the fear of what the wolves could do, seems like a very paralyzing state when the Lord has actually put before you a feast He's laid, he's spread before you uh, this feast amidst your enemies, this table that he's prepared for you to partake in his rest, to partake in his joy and his peace. I mean, as we talk about Advent over the next few weeks and we talk about his hope and his peace and his joy and his love, like these are things that he desires for you to partake in, but they don't often come in the ways that we thought they would, do they? Have any of them come in the ways that you thought they would? (laughs) When Jesus came to this earth, did he come in a way that anybody thought that he would? No. And so if, it's the, if that's the context, the sheep in the midst of wolves, what does it mean for us to be wise as serpents? It sounds kind of odd. And I think it means that we need to allow Jesus to train us, that we actually need to allow him to train us to see opportunity where others see tragedy and risk. And others aren't willing to go. And when those wolves come near, we should be tuning our attention and applying the power of the mind that he's given us, that God has given us. Instead of thinking about ourselves, why don't we think about something else? How do we move the kingdom forward? How do we advance the kingdom? How can I use this step to further his call in my life? And we, we may be like sheep in our dependence, but, but we're actually supposed to be more like snakes in our strategy. And it's easy to be sheep, isn't it? Like, sheep require nothing of us. Just follow the crowd. Go and do what everybody else is doing. Don't step out of line. Don't think too hard. Come in and go out on Sundays. Just make sure you show up at your community group. Just do all the things that don't require any thought of you. Honestly, the older I get, the more I realize doing the right thing always requires a lot of me. Does anybody else relate to that? And yet, when it comes to the right thing, the question we ask is often like, do I actually want to do it because I know it's going to require something of me? So I'll do what's easy. What's easy is to do what the crowd is doing, to go along with everybody else. But he's asked you to be wise as serpents. Like there should be no better people on this planet tapping into the power of the the imagination and the intellect that God has given us than the people who actually believe that they were created in the creator's image. 
There should be nobody else. Um, I, I don't know about you guys, if you listen to podcasts a lot, but um, I end up listening to a lot of podcasts. And most of the time it's like theology stuff or Christian-related podcasts. And every now and then I have um, my indulgence of one podcast that I go to because it's very challenging for me and it gets me thinking. Um, I don't know if any of you ever listened to Joe Rogan. Anybody? <laughs> all right. Not that I agree. I'm not like saying I agree with Joe Rogan. I'm not even telling you all to go listen to it. But when you listen to him talk, what you realize is he's put a lot of time and a lot of attention in the things that he says, why he does what he does. And I can't help but listen to it sometimes and think like, why don't we do that? Like as Christians, why do we always take the easy, cheap way? Why, why don't we put time and attention and thought into the things that we do, the why behind what we do? Why aren't we the ones asking all of the questions and challenging the world in their own thoughts? Like, why aren't we using the intellect that, we, that God gave us? And so when he says, be wise as serpents, he's saying, be, in, be intentional. Actually, use the time that you have, the mind that God's given you to advance the kingdom forward. But then he tensions that with the statement of, be wise as serpent. But then he says, be innocent as doves. Innocent as doves. We need to be people who actually maintain their purity of heart in the midst of being wise, in the midst of being uh, intentional in what we do. And then Jesus goes on to say this, and this is all, they had to hear this before they heard, they had to hear that before they hear this. He goes on to say, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so the, the next example that Jesus promises as he calls us is one that might feel a little bit exaggerated to you and I. But I promise you that it's not. You don't have to be an amazing church historian to know that when Jesus promises his disciples that they'll actually stand trial, that, that that's an understatement to what actually happened to most of these men. I mean, you just read the book of Acts and you watch the 11 that Jesus called go through this. And then countless other disciples of Jesus throughout, throughout history have done the, the, the very, very same thing. And in fact, today, we have brothers and sisters around the globe doing this. Like, they've followed Jesus straight into chains. They've followed Jesus straight into jail cells. They, they, they're, they're wasting away as we speak this morning. They're being dragged around on his account. Some of them will spend much much of their lives enslaved. For some, they will consider that their ministry that God has called them to, and they will do it with pure joy. But just gonna, they're going to be dragged before governors and kings and rulers of all kinds and give an account and make a defense and forever be enslaved. Some will be let go, and some will eventually even be put to death. And how does that reconcile with our sense of a call? Because I haven't had to take that step in my life. And does that mean that we shouldn't? Does that mean because we live in a culture in America where this doesn't happen, that we don't actually have to live in an intention of uncomfortability where we're willing to leave it all behind or do and say whatever he asks us to do and say, even if it puts us in positions where we could potentially lose our jobs, our friendships, and our lives in order to do so? 
I hope that we don't get to a place where we become so comfortable we're not willing to do that. And I think we just need to be aware in the church. Like, if we're going to be wise as serpents, let's notice the trajectory that things are on. Anybody think that over the last year things have just been cool in the United States of America? Like, if you have any inkling of brain at all, you're like, this does not go anywhere good. (laughs) And yet now more than ever, people are running to anything that's safe and harmless so that they can escape the pain of what's going on in the world. And you, church, you'll be the ones that run to it. You'll be the ones that God asked to leave it all behind and risk it all in order to run into the pockets that everybody else wants to flee. You'll be the ones that'll be called to say the hard thing when everybody else is saying what everybody else is saying so that they don't risk their lives or their reputation. It goes on to say this in verse 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And this should be the comforting part of it all. Anybody in here ever been in a situation in your life where you did not know what to say or what to do, and you just had to trust the Lord to say something through you or do something because you couldn't figure it out on your own? That's why Jesus gives us these verses. It's this amazing piece of encouragement. Notice what he says. He says, the spirit of your father... And it's one of the only times Jesus phrases things this way. And it's this amazing way. He he says the spirit of your father, not the spirit of my father. He says the spirit of your father. And so what's he doing? Like he's literally calling us family. Like this is the second person of the Trinity telling us that when you go through moments like that, when you suffer on account of his name, that he promises us that the first and the third person of the Trinity will actually be there with you. That God the Father and the Spirit will actually be there with you, that you do not need to worry about what to say or what to do, because he will lead you in those moments. The Father and the Spirit will come to your defense. And, And maybe this explains why we have so many stories of Christian prisoners converting so many people to Jesus in their jail cells. Like, go watch the videos online. It's absolutely insane. Maybe that's why you have so many stories of prisons literally being filled with people singing and proclaiming the name of Jesus. Maybe it's why we're told in the book of James that we're to consider it pure joy when we face trials in our life. Not just because of what God's producing in us, but because God is actually at work producing something in us, making us into something in moments like that. Like that. He's doing something in all. Somebody once told me God doesn't waste anything. And I've never forgot that because in, in moments like we're in right now, we have to know that none of this is wasted. God is going to use this for his glory and for his purposes. So the first two circumstances, sheep, sheep among wolves, that we're called to live on trial always, willing to lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus. And then the last one he says is this, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Anybody encouraged this morning? Um, I told you at the beginning, like, it's a fairly heavy sermon, being that we're talking about persecution. But what I want us to see here, Anthem, is that Jesus knew with perfect clarity 
He knew with perfect clarity exactly what the implications would be of the gospel of the kingdom that he came preaching. He knew exactly what they'd be. He knew with perfect clarity exactly what it would cost men and women to continue to preach the gospel once he left. He knew exactly what it would cost us, which is why he promised us here deep relational discord. And then we freak out when like relationships are disbanding because we're taking a stand for what we believe. And he's saying here, Man, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his children and children will rise against parents and put them to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Like it doesn't sound super encouraging, but what we know is that our call is to be wise as serpents, to say the right thing in the right time, to be obedient as the Lord leads, to keep our hearts pure, to remain tensioned in the uncomfortability of following Jesus. And trust that he will see us through, but we know that things don't always go well. And the church, as we know it, is supposed to be family. Like, we're not just a group of people that are connected by some doctrine, but we're actually this group of people that actually are family. We're brothers and we're sisters and we're sons and we're daughters of God together. And when I read that passage, I think, yes, when it comes to nuclear family, there are some nuclear families that will pay as one stands for Jesus and another chooses not to. And there's division in the family. But when we look at the family of God that we're invited to, the bigger picture, what we know is that nothing can break that apart that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Um, I'm gonna end with a story real quick. When I was, I was in Egypt about 10 years ago and uh, we did the skateboard demo- demonstration at, on a sports camp out in the middle of the wadi, it's called, like the middle of the desert, two hours away from Cairo. They invited us out there to come do these skateboard demos, like three demos a day for three days. And they were going to bus 20,000 people from Cairo out to the desert to, to watch these, these demonstrations. And we got to preach the gospel. As long as we were out in the wadi on their property, we could say whatever we wanted. So that's why we did it out there. Well, on the day of the first event, um, the, the leaders who were putting on the event came to us and said, man, the, the police literally set up a post on the way out here. They had 150 buses that they were busing people out to um, the Wadi in, and they said the police set up a post and they're literally taking everybody's identification as they're coming out here. And if their ID reads um, uh, Muslim, then uh, they had to turn around and go back. They couldn't keep going. But if their identification read Christian, which they are ID'd from birth, then, um, or Coptic, then they can come out to the event. So they didn't want any Muslims out there. Well, the first day, we, we get out there and we do this skateboard demonstration and we invite all these people to come forward for prayer, and we probably had like 400 people come forward for prayer. I mean, it was just like, like they were pouring in through these, fence, these fences, and we were trying to figure out how to pray for everybody. We're literally like taking any believer we knew and like, ah, go pray for the, those 12, you know, and like, you go pray for them. We're trying to pray for all these people, and this group of kids walks up to us. We're all about 18 years old, these total skate rats, and they're like, they walk up to us, and they're like bawling, and they're like, you guys talked about this, Jesus. Like, we, we want to follow Jesus. And, um, and we're like, well, can we pray with you? They're like, you don't know what this is going to cost us. And we're like, what do you mean? They're like, we're Muslims. Um, and one bus out of 150 got through that had a bunch of Muslims on it that got out to this event, and these kids came forward and accepted Christ. 
And we sat there with 18-year-old kids who were saying, um, you don't know what this is going to cost in my life. Like, either our parents are going to disown us or we could be killed for this. And um, yet there's this whole underground church movement happening in Egypt where these kids were able to get plugged into underground churches where people literally wear their Muslim garb by day, go down into these basements, into these Bible studies by night, take off the garb, open up the Bible, and study the Word of God. And that whole experience for me was this eye-opening experience of like, this is the reality for a lot of the world. Like, we talk about freedom of religion in the United States. What an amazing thing that we get to do that. The majority of the world does not have the privilege that we have. And so literally, as we're, as we're here this morning and we're studying, we're talking, we're worshiping, we're in this free place, there's people sitting in jail cells. There's people that will make a decision to follow Jesus today and will lose their lives tomorrow. There's people that will die of starvation in jail cells today as a result of captivity because they were put away because of their, the proclamation of their faith in Jesus. That is the reality that the rest of the world is living in. And then as we get to this text, it's so hard for me is like, 42-year-old white American guy to read this and go like, how does this apply to my life? Like, am I going to be dragged before the courts and scourged in the, the synagogues? You know, like, how, how is this going to happen? Do I need to go put myself in the midst of those situations to make sure that those happen? Because that's what meaning being a disciple or a follower of Jesus is all about. And I sort of want to end with this one thing that he, he says at the end of this passage, um, the, the end of our passage for today, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. He said, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. And so if we think that we're somehow above Jesus, then we can go on with our comfortable life. But if our desire is to follow him and to relate to him, then what we realize is the God of the universe who stepped down from heaven, who died on the cross for our sins and rose again, actually lived on this earth in the midst of intense persecution and lost his life for it. And what the, state, what the passage is saying is like, you aren't above that. You should be willing to lose your life for the sake of the mission as well. And so where are you at this morning? Do, do you find yourself in a place in your life tensioned between um, uncomfortability and uncompromised and unwavering? Or do you find yourself giving in to things that make life more comfortable and allowing compromise to slowly seep its way in and, and allowing yourself to be more comfortable than maybe you ever have before? And what does it look like for you? Because what we realize is that God isn't calling everybody to go turn their backs on their families, Right? <laughs> That this call as a disciple will pan out differently for every one of us in this room, given the context and your jobs and your families and your own situations. But what we can know for certain is that God has called you to live an uncomfortable life, to live in a tension that's actually very healthy. And we don't like to live in that tension because we're raised in soil in the area that we live in to run to the pockets of most comfort to make ourselves feel the best that we can so we don't ever have to feel anything. And I think this morning Jesus wants you to feel this. And not in a discouraging way, but in a way that's like, church, how does this pan out in your life? 
And in following him, do you trust that his spirit will speak through you and give you everything you need in the times that you find yourself in to enable you to say and do the things that he's called you to do in order that the gospel of the kingdom continues to advance forward. The mission of Jesus continues to move forward on this earth and people come to know him. Where are you at this morning? Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the worship team and Henry to come up here. I want to pray for you guys. If you'd bow your heads with me. Jesus, I want to thank you um, for the privilege of following you. I want to thank you, Jesus, that um, I thank you for the glimpses of my own life where I've literally been able to look people in the eyes that have had to make decisions to follow you even when it put their life on the line. And I thank you for those reality checks. And I pray for each person in this room, God, that though the majority of us will never have to lose our life for the gospel, what I do know for certain is that we do leave our life behind to follow you. And so I pray for us, Jesus, if there's if comfort is first and foremost in our life, if we find ourselves in compromised states, constantly giving in to this and that because we're afraid of actually taking a stand, then I pray, Jesus, this morning that your spirit would intercede in this time. I pray that you'd come in, that you would comfort us, that you would equip us and give us all that we need, Jesus, to walk this out. And I pray for my friends in this room that we could really peacefully live in a state of uncomfortability recognizing, Jesus, that if our hands are open and all we have is yours, then there's nothing that could be taken from us that would completely deplete our expectations and cause us to be frustrated with you. Jesus, would you bless each person in this room? I pray that their souls just be filled today, God, with your life and your power, your love and your grace and your mercy. God, I pray that we be a hopeful people and that the next few weeks as we work through Advent, that we would live life in anticipation, Lord, not of your birth, but anticipation of your second coming, knowing that every day and every hour that we are on this earth, that we walk in obedience to you does actually set a trajectory and change lives for eternity. And so I pray, Jesus, that you supernaturally empower us and be with us, Jesus, and that you bless each person here this morning in your name. Amen.